giving you an update on the travel that Quinn is doing. Because I tell you, you got to be a champion every day and all things because life could definitely make you want to um, quit instead of, uh, you know what I mean? Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So. Definitely. While you wait for the others to make it all worthwhile, all your useless pretensions are weighing on my time. You could beg for forgiveness as long.
Hi, and welcome to the Weekly Review with Roman. Uh, we are broadcasting live from Mutiny Radio. We are in San Francisco, and we are on Remitouche Ohlone land. And for more information, please go to weeklyrev.org. If you click on the land acknowledgement tab, we've got lots of links with resources, places to donate, more information to learn, as well as going to remitouche.org, and that's R-A-M-A-Y-T-U-S-H.org. Um, got a got a show for you today, uh, as we do on Fridays. Uh, if you're listening for the first time, welcome. Play music, go over anti-capitalist news, uh, get angry about things because there's a lot to be angry about. And uh, yeah, sometimes start off the show with a rant. hadn't in a while, but uh, I was feeling particularly angry this morning. And I think it's just a combination of things. It's the Supreme Court deciding to override a moratorium on evictions during a pandemic. They voted six to three to. Uh, because I guess, I guess, uh, I, I can't, I mean, it just feels uh, like running around in circles saying the same thing every fucking week. Um, also, unemployment, the new benefits are going to end, supposedly end on September 4th, so that's also not good. Kids are going back to school, and many are getting, are getting sick uh, with COVID. Uh, in a lot of cases, it's worse than it was this time last year. People are still refusing to get vaccinated, even though there are places, other places uh, in the world where people have yet to get their first shot. Um, yeah, lots of folks are dying. I think over 4 million people around the world have died of COVID so far that we know about. Uh, I go to worldometers.info, and they have a lot of statistics there about COVID. Uh, in Florida, and I think in Texas as well, but definitely in Florida, the ICUs are so full that they've had to turn away patients, people who are coming in with other conditions. I think doctors were going to or have already staged a walkout because the beds are full of unvaccinated folks, taking up resources from folks who otherwise would you know, need attention and can, cannot be seen. So that alone is, is enough to be fucking angry about all of the above. Cops are still killing people. Cops are also refusing to get vaccinated, and apparently COVID was the number one killer of cops in 2020 gonna just let that sit there uh they're not wearing masks either that's great when you it's not enough to uh to pretend to serve and protect but you also have to infect infect people too and uh i just find it it fascinating that uh you know you would think that cops would be the i think maybe they're just angry because they're used to being the ones who get to kill uh, Americans every year, and now COVID seems to be... I'm trying to work out a joke for that, I guess, and it's kind of difficult because it's so fucking tragic, but also it's like, all right, cops kill over a 1,000 people that we know of in the uh, United States every year. And there's a, joke, there's a joke there. So if you still do comedy, I kind of stepped out of that arena. By all means, please use, these, use this material here. There's something there. Something there. Uh, I'll put it together at some point, but I think it's just... Uh, kind of bonkers to, to live in a world where there are people who are paid to harm others. And uh, a lot of us are struggling to stay afloat. There are still uh, more empty houses and apartments in this country than there are people who need housing. And even if you don't care about morals or ethics or any of that, if you only care about money, it's still cheaper to house people than to have them be on the street. Um, there are people who are incarcerated who should not be, which is most people in my opinion. And of course, it's COVID's highly in, infectious there, and it's cruel, and people 
end up coming out a lot worse than they were when they got in and worse in terms of mental health, physical health, etc. And then being separated from one's family um, clearly just is horrible. So, uh, yeah, we got cars <laughs> overrunning the streets. I mean, lack of time and energy and finances being put towards public transit, making it safe and accessible for people. Uh, uh, cars kind of just take up the roads and drivers are getting pretty fucking horrific. I think they have been for a while, but even more so, and it's quite frightening. Wow. Um, I do try to provide some positive news. Maybe there'll be some on the show. There's things that to, we can do to make ourselves feel better and to make the world better because there's no point in just going through all this and feeling awful. There are ways to, to show up, and I do try to provide that on the show, and we will. We'll get to it. It's just, uh, I think, important what needs to be said, and it, I want to give voice to the numerous people out there who are also kind of feel like you're, we're banging our, our heads against the wall and so many of us did as much as we could in the last year to protect ourselves and to protect others. And it does feel quite frustrating that due to people's unwillingness to listen to science and wear masks and or get vaccinated now that there's variants that are more deadly and it's spreading to a lot of folks and a lot of kids. And of course, it's, it's you know, symbolic for this this country of just putting profit over everything else. So ensuring people get back to work instead of just paying people to stay home and be safe while the disease runs its course, while this virus runs its course. And of course, the billionaires got a lot more money during the pandemic. Uh, yeah, uh, things feel pretty grim. Wow. Can't imagine why I don't have uh, millions of subscribers to the show, but I don't know. Maybe I'll... Figure it out someday. Uh, again, I have trouble not telling the truth, though. Maybe that's part of it. Um, uh, hard to make people feel comfortable when I myself am not feeling comfortable and feeling just quite disappointed. I mean, I, I still have hope for humanity somehow. Uh, I'm still around. I still do recognize that there are so many people who are organizing and working to make this world a more equitable and safe place. And at the same time, just reading about what's happening, hearing about what's happening... Uh, it feels so disturbing, and it's difficult to difficult to keep going sometimes. And I know I can probably also turn off social media, mostly on Twitter these days. Um, I do find good information there. It's just it's so uh, there's so much to be angry about, which will lead us to our first story. But I did want to share the names of the songs we played already on the show. First was a song by the band Grizzly Bear, While You Wait for the Others, and then State of Love and Trust by Pearl Jam. And Pearl Jam is celebrating, if you want to feel old <laughs> like me, uh, they're celebrating the 30-year anniversary of their album 10. And this song happened to be originally off the single soundtrack, which was also re released around the same time. But um, yeah, 30 years, wow. Uh, nice. Anyway. I'm a fan of that band and thought I'd uh, share that song. Did want to get to some news stories for you all. And uh, a lot of these I'm, I've either just seen the headline for the most part and will be reading reading along, so learning along. And I think that's also something I try to remember is that there's so much to learn and unlearn. And I constantly want to 
evolve and be a better human, be more empathic, more kind, conscientious, uh, informed. And it's really hard because there's so many, uh, so many messages. I think a lot of indirect messages out there that kind of just make me want to re retreat and escape. And I try to like push back against that when I can. And one really fucked up thing about this pandemic and about just fascism in general is that it kind of the behavior that it encourages is to be distrusting and to be uh, easily irritated. And I don't, I don't want that. I want to be trust, trusting of people and open and assume the best in people. And it's really difficult when there's so much fear involved with, with the pandemic and how contagious it is and wanting to protect oneself and one's loved ones. And uh, I think it sometimes can really bring out the worst in people. And I'm trying to, trying to push back against that, but it's, it's really hard because I do feel very frustrated when I feel like the least you can do is like put on a fucking mask, especially if you're talking. Uh, and uh, it's, you know, when you're around other people and uh, people who don't do that, it's just, it's really like, I don't enjoy doing it, but it's kind of like bare minimum here. This is what we got. And it just feels so disappointing. Anyway, uh, <laughs> welcome to the show. This first article I'm going to read, I haven't read anything from this organization slash website before. It's Research Digest. And it's from the British Psychological Society, Promoting Excellence in Psychology. Interesting. I found this online. And the title of the article is what got me. We think anger is a sign of guilt, but it may actually be a better sign of innocence. And if anger means that you're innocent, I guess I'm super fucking innocent because I'm angry most of the time. And this was written by Emma Young. We famously, we're famously bad at spotting lies, while most of our skilled liars are better. That doesn't stop us thinking we know when someone's spinning us a line, of course. Now, a new paper in Psychological Science reveals that we take an angry denial to be a sign that the accused is lying. And yet, Catherine A. DeSellis at the University of Toronto and colleagues also report, anger in response to a false accusation is in fact a sign of innocence. In initial studies on more than 4,000 online participants, a team established that anger is consistently taken as a sign of guilt. I'm going to pause here for a moment and just think about how, like, how anger is so pathologized, uh, especially in this country. And yet there's so much to be angry about and just how, so I'm just thinking about that out loud. Okay, this uh, held across a, a variety of contexts, including a fictional courtroom situation with an accusation of armed robbery and also scenarios involving accusations of infidelity and theft. In each case, the participants read about how the confronted individuals reacted and made judgments about their guilt. Fictional people who'd made angry denials were taken to be guiltier than those who'd made irritated denials, characterized by a raised voice and less vehement protests. And they were in turn taken to be guiltier than those who'd calmly professed their innocence. Perhaps though, professionals who often have to make guilt judgments in their jobs react differently. A fresh study on 136 such people, including fraud investigators, police and lawyers, found this not to be the case. These participants judged that an employee described as having reacted angrily to an accusation of theft was guiltier than one who had reacted calmly. In fact, the angry employee was considered just as guilty as the silent employee who'd refused to respond when confronted. If anger is actually a sign of guilt, then these results would suggest a useful clue to truthfulness, of course. 
However, in a subsequent study, participants who were asked to reflect on situations in their own lives reported feeling and also displaying more anger when they had been falsely versus justly accused of a misdeed. It didn't matter whether the deed was trivial, taking a roommate's food, for example, or serious, cheating on a spouse, say, or workplace misconduct. In a final study, participants took part in an in-person lab-based experiment in which some were, were falsely accused of making mistakes on a text-based task. This group reported feeling angrier than those who were correctly accused of making errors. Overall, then, as the researchers write, anger does seem to be used as invalid cue of guilt while being a valid cue of innocence. It's important to understand what is and isn't a genuine sign of innocence versus guilt in all kinds of situations, of course. But there are a few reasons to be cautious about drawing strong conclusions from this new work. For example, the angry denials that the participants read in the initial experiments were pretty angry, featuring explicit language and expressing outrage. Their anger level was a lot higher than that reported by participants in the latter studies in response to being falsely accused themselves. Even those who'd reflected on being falsely accused of a serious transgression did not protest too much. An emotional overreaction that doesn't match the scale of an accusation might yet be a sign of guilt, at least this paper doesn't show that it isn't. However, it's true that people who reacted with irritation were taken to be guiltier than those who responded calmly. So until more work is done in this area, it seems worth at least trying not to use someone's anger level in response to an accusation as a sign of guilt. I'd like to print this out and send it to all, all the police departments all over the world. Start off with this country, I guess, maybe even just the city, uh, just due to how often uh, people are profiled. Wow, this is really interesting. So as with the uh, rest of the articles I'll share on the show, we'll provide a link on our website at weeklyrev.org. And you can also find the archive of a lot of shows there from the past few years um, in the process of slowly updating the site. But you can find other shows there as well with interviews, music, lots more information. Okay, it is now 12.23. I do have some more articles to share and more music to play. And I'm trying to think about what I feel like doing next. So let's play some music and I'll, I'll figure that out right now. Uh, here is uh, another song I'd heard recently from Tin Machine, Under the God. This is the 1999 remix.
Hi, welcome back. Heard a song called uh, Deeper by Lapras, and before that, Under the God, God by Tin Machine. And I was just reading about Tin Machine and was realizing that David, I knew David Bowie was in the band, but I didn't realize that two of the other band members were the sons of Soupy Sales, who's a comedian back in the day. And uh, I thought that was interesting. All right. Uh, <laughs> up next, some action items and action item things that we can do to make the world better i guess uh twitter now has a tool for reporting covid19 misinformation how it works you can one report the tweet choose it's misleading choose health and then choose covid19 misinformation and um this is on august 20th and apparently uh so it's apparently it's an experiment right now and it's only available for some people in the u.s south korea and australia as of the 20th so let's see, uh, hopefully that'll be up and running soon if it's not already. This was like from a week ago. So hopefully there's ways uh, within Twitter and also on Reddit, they are pushing to label uh, COVID misinformation as disruptive. So that's something that one can do to try to get the misinformation uh, kind of scrubbed at the moment, which would be very helpful. Next up, article-wise, uh, science. Amid pandemic disruptions, grad students push to unionize. And this is from Katie Langan. And this is from Science Magazine, which you can find at sciencemag.org. This came out on August 26th. For graduate students at the University of New Mexico, the pandemic was a turning point. After their petition to extend graduation timelines and funding was unsuccessful, a group of graduate students spent the past year amassing signatures to form a union and fighting a dispute with the university over the legality of its efforts. Last week, the group received word that the state's labor board approved poised to certify its union. If that happens, it will be the first time students have been granted the right to unionize in New Mexico and could pave the way to contract negotiations. Graduate student unionization efforts aren't new. For decades, research and teaching assistants have banded together to form unions that give them collective bargaining power, particularly at public institutions in states whose labor boards allow it. The moment accelerated in recent years after a 2016 decision by the National Labor Relations Board to allow graduate students at private U.S. universities to unionize. By 2019, more than 80,000 U.S.-based graduate students were represented by unions, according to an analysis spearheaded by William Herbert, executive director of the National Center for the Study of Collective Bargaining in Higher Education and the Professions at Hunter College. At some universities, the pandemic served as a further catalyst. At UNM, it started with an April 2020 petition asking university administrators to grant a one-year extension to grad student degree timelines and funding sources. UNM's graduate school dean met with students to discuss their concerns, but the university's position that decisions should be left to individual departments frustrated petition organizers. Many of the people involved decided that we needed a more formal voice in this process of bargaining, says UNM Albuquerque physics PhD student Anupam Mitra. And that's what's led to the idea of, well, we should probably have a graduate workers union. Organizers filed paperwork to form a union in December 2020. Afterward, the university disputed the union's legality, arguing to the state's labor board that graduate students aren't quote-unquote, regular employees, and therefore don't have a right to form a collective bargaining unit, a move that struck a big nerve. Mitra says, it was very dismissive of both our skills and our dedication to what we do. 
but with the Labor Board's recent decision, which sided with the students, ruling that they can be considered employees, union organizers are hopeful that university administrators will meet them at the bargaining table soon. A UNM spokesperson wrote that the university is waiting until the State Labor Board officially certifies the union before deciding how to proceed. Graduate student researchers in the University of California system made a similar unionization push during the pandemic. UC teaching assistants are already unionized, but research assistants are not, because until legislation passed in 2017, they weren't considered employees in California. Planning started in early 2020 before the pandemic hit us all very hard, says Katie Augsperger, a biochemistry PhD student at UCSF. But news issues that arose during 2020, such as student frustrations with COVID-19 safety policies, helped organizers convince some graduate students to sign on to the unionization efforts, she says. Organizers submitted signed union cards to the State Labor Board in May and are awaiting next steps. Graduate students at University of Vermont, UVM, aren't as far along in the process, but frustrations they experienced during the pandemic have kick-started unionization discussions, says Marcus Weinman, a molecular biology PhD student at UVM who is now working to form a union there. Many wished they'd had a seat at the table last year when decisions were being made about who would be required to work on campus, particularly in the fall, when in-person classes resumed. I was teaching, ironically, in a microbiology lab in a very closed-off basement laboratory with no windows and very poor ventilation with 30 students, Weinman says. He emailed university administrators to ask what could be done to safeguard everyone's safety, such as augmenting the, ve the ventilation. But the university didn't make any changes to the classroom or how the course was taught, he says. Other graduate students have shared similar stories, including frustrations with professors who press students to resume experiments and other work on campus, and during the coming academic year, they hope to gather enough signatures to form a union. I would be lying if I said there wasn't a desire to do this before the pandemic started, Weinman says, but the pandemic has turned that up from kind of a small little ember into more of a pretty long-burning fire. Part of what is motivating these efforts is, see, is seeing existing un, unions advocate and push for graduate students to be taken care of, Weinman says. At Oregon State University, OSU, for example, the decades-old coalition of graduate employees spent months negotiating with university administrators in the summer of 2020, eventually securing exemptions from in-person work for students who didn't feel safe working on campus, as well as funds to subsidize home internet costs. Though the students didn't get um, everything they wanted, childcare support wasn't granted, for instance. I'm absolutely confident that we would not have even had a platform to win anything without the union, says Tilatama Chatterjee, a biochemistry PhD student at, U, at OSU Corvallis, who serves as the Graduate Student Union's Vice President for Communications. Negotiations are now taking place to secure similar protections for graduate students during the coming academic year, she says. New issues have also cropped up this year, says Joey Val, a materials science and engineering PhD student at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, who serves as the president of the Graduate Employees Organization, which went on strike in 2020 to protest the university's reopening plans. This year, one of the organization's main concerns related to the university's vaccine mandate. Some graduate students are working remotely from countries with low vaccine availability, so it wasn't reasonable to expect them to be fully vaccinated in order to enroll for the fall semester, Val says. 
Earlier this month, the university announced that international students will have the option of requesting a temporary deferral of the requirement. However, the timeline on what they consider to be temporary is still a point we are discussing, Valley says. All right. So, fairly informative article and hopefully inspiring to other folks out there. Again, this is from Science Mag, and we will share it on our website. Let's play some more music, shall we? Cool. All right, we'll be back uh, after this.
Hi. Woo. <laughs> Welcome back. Wasn't quite ready there. Um, heard some music there. Uh, the last song was um, The Equals with Police on My Back. Before that, Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings with 100 Days, 100 Nights. <coughs> Excuse me. And before that, Bonnie X Clyde with So High. Next up, I'm going to share a clip from the Yes Men. And the Yes Men are, I would call them awesome pranksters, really cool folks. Um, there's there's a documentary that they did a while ago. They do a lot of, uh, I don't know how best to describe them, but they're pretty fucking rad. And um, they called into Newsmax, which is this new, awful, like Fox News, I want to say on steroids, but it's just pretty bad and like just full of a lot of right-wing propaganda. And they called in and... Uh, I'm gonna play. Uh, <laughs> I'm gonna play this call right now. So just wanted to introduce it that way. Uh, you can also find it on YouTube, and uh, this came out on August 21st. But wanted to share this. Uh, war is all we've got. Uh, Newsmax tells viewers Afghanistan war wasted two trillion dollars. So uh, I'll play that and be back uh, after this.
Welcome back to America Right Now. It has been a week since Afghanistan fell to the Taliban and still tens of thousands of Americans and Afghanis are still trapped in the country facing an uncertain future. To get his views on how we got here and how we move forward, former Deputy Secretary of Defense under President George W. Bush, someone who is an architect of our national response after 9-11, Paul Wolfowitz. He joins us on the phone. Mr. Secretary, good to have you with us. Great to have you. Thank you. So we are nearing the 20th anniversary of 9-11. You were there at the beginning. Successive administrations have openly questioned our engagement in Afghanistan and even dismissed it. Uh, but maintaining the status quo was an important operational objective that we were achieving. Did you believe that the, the mission in some form should have continued? Oh, absolutely, Tom. That goes without saying. I, uh, you know, there's been a lot of talk about how President Biden ended this war in Afghanistan and on what we have to do now. But there's very little about the fact that Biden did end this war. And of course, we do have to rescue our allies. I wrote recently about this in the Washington Post. And every single Afghan who needs to get out of there should be able to do so. But Tom, what the piece in the Wall Street Journal is truly about is that a sitting president right. in the office of president unnecessarily ended a war for no reason at all. Mm -hmm. Because let's be honest, Tom, there just aren't a lot of things that ordinary Americans can be proud of these days. We know that other prosperous countries have it better in healthcare, infrastructure, education, elder care, food options, and income. And if you take away our global dominance, we're left with a whole lot of nothing. Yeah, and Biden should have waited till he at least got something passed in terms of healthcare and education, for example or even just transport and infrastructure, but with nothing to show Americans why Americans great, dominance in a place like Afghanistan is all we've got to keep us away from that ledge. Ms. Of course, yeah. $2 trillion could have been spent building stuff that people want instead of going to big defense contractors and shareholders, but that's all milk under the table, Tom, and yeah. the point is ending a war with nothing at all to replace it is the pinnacle of irresponsibility when you've got crumbling infrastructure, rising addiction and death rates, poor food options, substandard education, expensive health care, right. and so on. Americans just can't be proud of that. But they can be proud of a war, even if it's unwinnable, even if it lasts 20 years, even if it's been a failure from day one in my administration. That's yeah. what we've lost, and that is yeah. truly tragic, Tom. Mr. Secretary, you, I want to talk about that op-ed that you wrote in the Wall Street Journal. So uh, that's uh, <laughs> the first part of it. It's about 11 minutes long. Uh, I wanted to share that, and I really appreciate the yes men quite a bit. Um, I just don't know how much more I can uh, listen to uh, any Newsmax uh, person. <laughs> wow. Oh, goodness. Uh, they have this transcript available as well. Um, let's see. I'm looking through the, the transcript right now. Yeah, uh, pretty, I really appreciate it. Uh, okay, next up. We have events that are coming up. It is uh, almost one o'clock. 
So there is a conversation happening on September 1st at 5 p.m. And this is Strong Communities Make Cops Obsolete. Join Gio Mar, Robin D.G. Kelly, and at A. Vital, uh, Alex Vital, uh, for a conversation about organizing alternatives to police and policing. It's hosted with Verso Books, Wednesday, September 1st at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. And I'll read a little bit about this event. If police are the problem, what's the solution about this event? Tens of millions of people poured onto the streets for Black Lives Matter, bringing with them a wholly new idea of public safety, common security, and the delivery of justice. Communicating that vision is the fiery vernacular of riot, rebellion, and protest. Gio Mar's new book, A World Without Police, transcribes these new ideas, written in slogans and chants over occupied bridges and hastily assembled barricades into a compelling must-read manifesto for police abolition. Compellingly argued and lyrically charged, A World Without Police offers concrete strategies for confronting and breaking police power as a first step toward building community alternatives that make the police obsolete. Gio will be joined by Robin D.G. Kelly and Alex Vital to pick up on these urgent themes and to examine the alternatives to police and policing. Register through Eventbrite to receive the link to the video conference on the day of the event. This event will also be recorded and have live captioning. So again, this is happening on Wednesday, September 1st from 2 to 4 p.m. Pacific time. And again, it will be recorded and have live captioning. And uh, it's free. Um, however, donations are um, accepted. So again, from Haymarket Books, and we will share the link to this conversation on our page. I am very interested in this, for sure. OK, what's next? What's next? What's next? <sighs> That's a lot of information already, I realize. There's an article we'll be sharing on the page that I'm not quite going to read, but I thought it was important to reshare. Underlying causes of homelessness nobody talks about, and that's from Invisible People. And so I'll just, I guess I can read some of the, the outline here. One is extremely uneven wealth distribution. Uh, let's see. What we see in the U.S., however, is that the wealthiest 5% of the population maintains at least two-thirds of the country's wealth. I mean, that alone is pretty fucked up. Two, relative income hypothesis, a.k.a. our natural inclination to want to be better than others. Um, actually, you know what? I'm going to go back. I am going to read this. Um, maybe I've read it on the show before, but I don't know if I have. This came out on December 21st, 2020. It's written by Cynthia Griffith. And again, you can find it at invisiblepeople.tv. <clears throat> I'm actually going to have uh, some water. Clear my throat. Yeah, I can't believe it's, it's only been an hour. So there's just so much out there. Okay. As we bear down in preparation for a possible new international shutdown, uh, tens of millions of Americans face the looming threat of eviction. Many of them might be thinking about homelessness for the first time in their lives, wondering how or if it could happen to them. Yeah, I guess this is actually quite timely given the Supreme Court's decision on the eviction moratorium. Wondering how or if it might happen to someone they know. Even in the dead of winter, with an international health emergency declared, new tents are pitched in city parks each night. New families huddle inside vehicles, working people becoming statistics as engines turn over. 
When their lives are collectively strung together, they are all seen just as numbers on the latest economic chart. How did we get here? Isn't homelessness a choice? Doesn't it only happen to lazy people or drug addicts or violent mental health patients? I know that it's in italics to be, but we all know the answers to these. The answer to all of the above listed questions, of course, is no. This is a picture that has been falsely painted in order to make individuals appear at blame for structural flaws in our social system. We are taught to believe that wealth and social status are reflective of our own personal actions. Statistics show that the opposite is true. When all the available data is reviewed, it becomes clear that the most, perhaps even all, of the leading causes of homelessness feature one common denominator, wealth inequality. Naturally, then, the answer to many of these social ills lies in the roots of that common denominator, what causes wealth inequality in a quote-unquote first-world country, or any country for that matter. How big of an issue is it, and how can we shift the paradigm for good? Below are a few underlying causes of the wealth inequality that causes homelessness in the United States of America. 1. Extremely uneven wealth distribution. Historically, humanity has lived in a world of rich and poor at various, as various different social systems cycle through the ranks, all taking different approaches but essentially achieving the same dissatisfying results. The thing that makes America distinct is the fact that it managed to masquerade itself as having a more even playing field compared to other countries. American capitalism greatly emphasizes its thriving middle class, and that's in quotes, and has been doing so for centuries. This is a great feat indeed because America doesn't actually have a middle class. While this truth is more evident in recent years, the harsh reality is that it never has. You might think that isn't possible, but it all comes down to one word, middle. The universally accepted definition of the term middle is a point that holds an equal distance between two extremes. In order for a middle class to exist, it would therefore need to be centrally positioned between rich and poor. What we see in the United States, however, is that the wealthiest 5% of the population maintains at least two-thirds of the country's wealth. In fact, of all developed countries across the globe, the U.S. bears the largest disparity between rich and poor. To give you a visual point of reference, this is what wealth in America would look like if it were distributed as beverages labeled small, medium, and large. And they show, oof, <laughs> they show a chart here where small is pretty minuscule, medium is maybe at like, so I would say from this chart, small is maybe at like a five, Medium's at maybe like a 10, and large is at 90. <laughs> As you can see, wealth inequality in America is definitely an issue. It could even be argued that it, it is the issue, sitting at the heart of all national division. What's baffling is how many people refuse to accept that it exists. How has it gone unnoticed, unchecked for all these years? Well, the answer rests in reason number two, human nature. Two. Relative Income Hypothesis, a.k.a. our natural inclination to want to be better than others. Relative Income Hypothesis states that the satisfaction or utility an individual derives from a given consumption level depends on its relative magnitude in the society, e.g. relative to the average consumption rather than its absolute level. That's from the International Encyclopedia of the Social Sciences, second edition. Excuse me. Psychological studies show that once basic needs are met, the average human being is not content with just having more. No, the average human is preoccupied with having more than 
wondering more than who. The answer is really anybody, but at the very least, somebody. However disheartening, having more than somebody is a universal goal of humanity. Oh, wow, that's grim. Through this lens, it becomes apparent that the best way to keep 98% of the population on the bottom is to place a small fraction of them at rock bottom, and then very subtly suggest that those above them are more fortunate and also better people in general. Homelessness doesn't have to exist in an industrialized society at all. It's there to make you feel good when you remember that your Toyota is not a Ferrari. Wait, what? It's there to make you feel good when you remember that your Toyota is not a Ferrari. It's, huh? I don't quite get this. Someone who doesn't own a car. I, I get that. Okay. Okay, moving on. It's never right there in your face because, no, you're not a monster. Rather, it presents, oh, I see. That you're a Toyota is not a Ferrari. Got it. It's never right there in your face because, no, you're not a monster. Rather, it presents itself as background noise. Homelessness is a subliminal message playing softly in far-flung corners of your mind. It urges you to do what you have to do to avoid it at all costs. This is why homelessness is made to seem like a choice or flaw. This is despite the fact that homelessness exists by design and is very much interwoven into our national economy. 3. Individualism Unlike uneven wealth distribution and social status comparisons, which have always existed to some extent, individualism is a newer contributor to wealth inequality. Ironically, it ties in quite well with the rise of senior homelessness in terms of its timing. Naturally, individualism creates division even within the immediate family. When, if it gives way to homelessness, further division of the family unit is encouraged through the shelter system as parents are taken from their children and fathers are often refused entry. Individualism is so widespread in our modern era that Psychology Today coined the phrase toxic individualism, claiming our societal narcissistic streak has led to mass tragedy. That's from Jean Kim, MD. Toxic individualism is arguably the necessary spawn to, of toxic capitalism, a dizzying display of what happens to humanity when it is constantly bombarded with the myth that everyone can just become a self-made millionaire if only they were to try a little harder. And so, 30.7 million small businesses are founded, of which 95% will fail in their first five years. <coughs> Excuse me, have some more water. Meanwhile, families become separated, older loved ones are ignored, children spend less and less time at home. Four, ooh, this is a good one, public perception of working harder. Henceforth, the individualist mindset equates poverty with personal failure, despite the fact that statistical data supports the opposite finding. The National Bureau of Economic Research cited the following as some top causes for rises in income inequality. One is a decline in the real value of the minimum wage, that's for sure, decreased union density for men, adverse effects from natural disasters like Hurricane Katrina, a sharp increase in skewness with labor compensation. In brief, the study concluded that since 2005, only the top 10% of the income distribution employed gains in real wage and salary income equal to or above the rate of productivity growth. This study is one of the many that pr proves that even though income is soaring for America's top 10% of earners, hard work and persistence, persistence did not play a pivotal role in the compensation. 
Furthermore, when examining income mobility, researchers found that people who begin life with low income are likely to stay that way, and this has changed little over time. Even with abundant evidence to the contrary, a full quarter of the U.S. population firmly believes that poor people are just not working hard enough. Oh, I'm gonna... <laughs> He's so fucking angry. The underlying message here comes straight out of Animal Farm. The public perception continues to be, if one wants to avoid homelessness, one simply has to work harder, which is such fucking bullshit. To that end, we've turned the affordable housing market into a kind of musical chairs. When the music stops, we're all scrambling against each other until someone inevitably falls to their depth, catching air where there should have been cushion. At a glance, the playing field looks even because the bottom 90% earners start as a at a similar point of disadvantage, being just a paycheck or two away from living unhoused. Then people are taught that the strategic climb to the top is rooted in hard work. Not only do we buy right into the deceitful concept, but we sell it too. We sell it to ourselves and each other. We pawn it off on the vulnerable and then wallow in shallow puddles of conceit. And this purchase costs us all waking hours. It's why homelessness exists in a contemporary industrialized society, so you'll work harder. It's why homelessness exists in a country where there are approximately 31 vacant homes for every singular homeless person, so you'll take that extra shift. It's why homelessness exists when we can build 3D printed houses in under 24 hours for less than $10,000 a unit, so you'll apply for that second job. It's why we spend billions of dollars creating and enforcing anti-vagrancy legislation so you'll keep feeding the machine. The cups are on the corners now. The tents sway in the billowing wind and freezing snow. Is the whole world really out of change? Talk to your local representatives, and they provide a link, about ending the barbaric practice of homelessness by making housing a human right that never goes unfulfilled again. Wow. This was a really well-written article uh, written by Cynthia Griffith. Again, this is for Invisible People TV, and it's a really uh, informative website. And uh, on the Talk to Your Local Representatives, they have uh, Talk to Your Legislators. It's brought to another link. Uh, we make it. I'm going to do this. I'm going to talk myself. I'm going to talk myself. I'm talking through it right now. Um, so I encourage you, if you're listening a lot, whenever you're listening to this, go to invisiblepeople.tv um, slash talk dash two dash your dash legislators um we'll also provide the link on our page take action uh, and you can put in your address doing that right now and your zip code okay click, click go uh, the most critical way uh, most critical step to solving homelessness is public advocacy. Your voice is essential to influencing policy change, so we made it easy for you to speak up and be heard. Type in your home address in the form below. Go da 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 da. Come da 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 da. It's gonna come up. Uh, your personal stories. Okay, so you can. Wow. And so it would be like Nancy Pelosi, Diane Feinstein, Joe Biden, Alex Padilla, and you put in your contact info, including a prefix. Um, Okay, I'm not really into prefixes, but that's just me. Put in my name, do do do, -do and my email. Okie dokie. <laughs> okay. Um, dear recipient, and it's a pre-written email. Uh, support affordable housing to end homelessness, and you can of course edit it and add your own 
um, name as well and your own story. So I'm going to send this off. Um, so really, you know, doesn't take too much time. And part of me, like, I, I get feeling super pessimistic, especially about some of the names I mentioned. Um, however, can't hurt to send this issue. And a lot, you know, what if, like, everyone did? That would be, I think that would be quite different for them. So big thanks to the folks at InvisiblePeople.tv uh, uh, for this information. And we're going to play some music now. And, uh, yeah, I think that's, uh, that's what'll be going on. All right. So let's get to the playlist. And also the playlist will be shared on our, uh, a link to the playlist will be shared on our website after the show. Here's a song called Shame, Shame, Shame by Lake Street Drive. Lake Street Dive, I should say.
what it's like when all the world's filled with light. How do you have that in your sight? Spread it around, do. Spread it around, do. Spread it around, do. Have you felt joy in your days? Even though you've had your share of pain, what does hoarding all that joy gain? Spread it around, do. Spread it around, do. Spread it around, do. Just a little more room. Spread it around, do. Spread it around, do. Spread it around, do. Are your blankets soft and warm? Does the roof above you keep out the storm? Can you save someone else from being cold? Spread it around, spread it around, do, spread it around, do.
All right, welcome back. <clears throat> Excuse me, that was unpleasant. Didn't mean to do that right in the microphone. That was Don't Go Put in Wishes in My Head by Torres. Before that, we heard 817 Oakland Avenue by Charlie Parr. Before that, Shame, Shame, Shame by Lake Street Dive. And got another event coming up that will be super informative. Abolition means no war. This is from Dissenters, Rampart, and Rampant, Rampant, excuse me, uh, Rampant Magazine, as well as Haymarket Books. And this is on September 3rd. Abolition means no war, the new generation of anti-imperialists. This is happening on Friday, September 3rd, 2021, 3 to 4, 30 p.m. Pacific time. This is an online event. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Join dissenters and Rampant Magazine to discuss abolition, imperialism, and building a movement for our global liberation about this event. While the U.S. sends drones and drops bombs in the Middle East and Africa, militarized police at home are killing black people and filling detention centers on the Mexico border. These are two sides of the same imperialist coin. Sprawling military bases around the world support the everyday brutal violence of empire and U.S.-backed military coups, coups uh, tear apart homes and force migration. Their wars haunt our families and bring violence into our homes and neighborhoods. It is time we abolish their wars. Dissenters is leading a new generation of young people to reclaim our resources from the war industry, reinvest in life-giving services, and repair collaborative relationships with the earth and the people around the world. Join Dissenters and Rampant Magazine for a discussion about rebuilding a movement against imperialism and creating a new global future built from mutual care, real safety, and liberation. Register through Eventbrite to receive the link to the video conference on the day of the event. This event will also be recorded and have live captioning. And the speakers are Buell Yoon, who's a founding member of Dissenters, and Destiny Harris, who is a black queer abolitionist and organizer from the west side of Chicago. She is a student of Howard at Howard University. Her work is at the intersection of abolition, anti-war, anti-militarism, and environmental liberation. Destiny believes in the power of storytelling, poetry, and culture as means of mobilization that should always be driving our movements. She has organized throughout Chicago on campaigns like hashtag defund CPD, Cops Out CPS, and the No Cop Academy campaign, which aimed to combat the narrative that our communities need police. Brian Bean is a Chicago-based socialist activist, writer, and speaker, originally from North Carolina. He is one of the founding members of Rampant Magazine. His work has been published in Jacobin, Red Flag, International Viewpoint, Bell Amar, and other publications. He is co-editor of Palestine, a Socialist Introduction from Haymarket Books, and recently co-authored the article, Rebuilding the Anti-Imperialist Movement in a New Era. Well, I'm going to click on that article right now and uh, share it with you all. And so this is from uh, March 17th of this year, Movement in a New Era. In an era of permanent war, rebuilding a movement against U.S. imperialism will require rethinking our long-held strategies. You can find this at Rampant. <laughs> Excuse me. Let's get into that point in the show where I'm kind of losing steam, but still still going strong. RampantMag.com. Jonathan Ellis, Brian Bean, March 17th, 2021. Mass slaughter has become the tiresome and monotonous business of the day, and the end is no closer. Bourgeois statescraft is held fast in its own vice. The spirits summoned up can no longer be exercised. That's from Rosa Luxemburg, the Junius pamphlet. America is back, proclaimed British Prime Minister Boris Johnson roughly a month after the inauguration of Joe Biden. 
Judson's childish hurrah is a summation of Joe Biden's presidential promise to restore U.S. leadership on the world stage. His promise of leadership was realized on February 26th when Biden, without congressional approval, carried out airstrikes on an alleged military installation of Iranian-backed Iraqi militias in eastern Syria. With, a, with the delivery of seven 500-pound bombs, Biden's attack killed 22 people in retaliation for a rocket attack on a U.S. military base in Iraq 11 days prior. The real target of this attack is Iran, as the U.S. continues to work with regional allies Saudi Arabia and Israel to foment an anti-Iranian axis to maintain U.S. hegemony over the strategically important Middle East region. In addition to his embrace of the U.S. tradition of bombing the Middle East, Biden also presented himself throughout his campaign as out-toughing Trump with aggressive stances on China. This stance reflects the continuation and sharpening of an anti-China strategy by the American ruling class and fits into the, it's the emergence of a new Cold War between the two powers over the past three years. Beyond the U.S.-China fault line, dual crises of economic woes and the still-unresolved pandemic could increase imperial tension around the world. As has always been the case, the scramble for profit and competition between capitalists internationally is greatly exacerbated by global, by, excuse me, <clears throat> by global crises like we currently face. The height of crisis can be expressed as armed conflict between states. As the epidemiological, epidemiological and economic storm does not appear to be clearing, we should expect these imperial tensions between the capitalist powers to rise, if not in a linear and symmetrical fashion, certainly as a dangerous trend. To confront these dangers, there is an urgent need to build a new movement against imperialism and war, and in the process to reflect on how we organize as we adapt to a new situation. It is no longer the case that we wait in a state of non-war on the brink of entering a traditional declared war. War is already upon us. In an inheritance of past conflicts, much of the orientation of left activity relies on trying to exert pressure at critical moments of emergency to stop the beginnings of traditional declared wars. We're living in a state of permanent asymmetrical war carried out daily all over the globe. Whew. Emergency protests. The main way that much of the left has engaged with questions of imperialism has tended to follow a similar playbook. In this playbook, anti-imperialist organizing work is not broadly connected or infused into the left or and socialist project beyond calls for emergency protests. These are called as responses to escalations of U.S. aggression overseas that are estimated to put the U.S. over the brink into broader conflict. The United States will engage in an action that could further escalate as existing conflict. The media puts concerted attention on the escalation, and activists will spring into action with calls for hands-off X. These efforts have held the line while larger liberal forces have deserted anti-war politics and even cheered U.S. militarism. Yet to move forward, we think this strategy needs to be interrogated. Strategy should be designed to activate broader layers. The playbook was in action in January of 2020 when the U.S. assassinated Qasem Soleimani, a top Iranian general, and Abu Mahdi al-Muhandis, an Iraqi militia leader. One response by Democratic Socialists of America was an emergency organizing call and the pres prescription for members to join protests. Locally, they joined smaller groups like the Stalinist Party for Socialism and Liberation, PSL, and other lo local left groups. There have been several similar protests called concerning U.S. intervention in Syria, and from 2013 to 2017, there were various threats of escalation with similar emergency responses from the left. 
Notably, the left didn't put out a statement or call or a call for emergency protest in response to Biden's recent bombing. One can't help but wonder if the support for Biden that characterized certain sections of the left haven't blunted the response. Obviously, there's nothing wrong with calling emergency protests in attempts to, to stave off escalation. Indeed, emergency protests are better than complacency or strongly worded tweets. However, while we imagine there will be there will still be a need to exert pressure at critical moments when more violence threatens, we also think that there is a limit to that strategy. The conception of war and imperialism that guides it does not match the current landscape of military conflict and domination. To put it bluntly, we are already past that brink, the brink, and living in a dangerous world of infinite conflict. Wow, what an, what an uplifting show I do here. We are living in a dangerous world of infinite conflict. Forever war. Let's see uh, how long this article is. Oh my, it's a bit longer, but I do, I am curious to hear about other options we can do. So let's, let's continue on. The lay definition of imperialism is generally understood to be a synonym for military aggression. While military might, while military might and conquest is its sharpest edge and most visible expression, imperialism is not only carried out through the barrel of a gun. We define imperialism as competition and conflict between the world's capitalist classes, of different states, especially the major powers, vying for domination and exploitation of the, of the globe's people, wealth, and resources. Economic tools are in some ways the preferred less messy method with institutions like the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank and the policies of trade deals, zones, tariffs, etc. also being weapons of the ruling class, uh, the ruling class uses for domination. Questions of war and interstate conflict cannot be separated from capitalism, its expansion and competition. This understanding distinguishes anti-imperialist politics from anti-war pacifism or a liberal opposition to war that objects to its exorbitant cost. Liberals may view armed conflict as distinct and separate from trade deals, sanctions, and the like, but all of those are tools of the U.S. power that operate in concert with the same motivations. Our organizing can only benefit by being able to present the total picture and the full arsenal of tools at the disposal of the ruling class. Presenting this total picture in its full breadth de demoralizes state bullying and makes visible what are the constant, current, everyday features of U.S. imperialism. The way the left looks at war and imperialism must change to reflect the actual conditions of the war in the 21st century. Iraq and Afghanistan still conform to the traditional conception of war, uh, where the U.S. state formally declares war with a bunch of and a bunch of troops move to the target area to overthrow another state. But beyond these examples, formal declarations of war have often been skipped in ongoing conflicts inaugurated under the auspices of the War on Terror, which uses the vague concept of terror, and that's in quotation marks, and a weaponized Islamophobia to wage war on whomever is convenient for the ruling class. This war has been waged via a large consolidation of power within the executive branch, allowing it to act unilaterally and largely without congressional oversight. And importantly, it has been a bipartisan process. This war has no boundaries and no end. One of the defining features of the forever war is the proliferation of drone strikes and targeted assassinations. Thousands of drone strikes have been carried out in Somalia, Syria, Iraq, Pakistan, and Libya under the pretense of targeting Daesh, which is ISIS, or al Al-Qaeda-affiliated groups. However, the official doctrine of the Obama administration determined that all military-age males in certain areas were targets. Combatant deaths are therefore inflated, and the reported civilian deaths are underestimated. Just under Obama, thousands have been killed. 
under the bellicose Trump administration, not only did the number of strikes perhaps double, but measures for reporting deaths were basically removed. We can expect more of the same under Biden. While the drone war is the most visible aspect, the breadth of U.S. imperialism globally is massive. The United States has over 800 military bases in 70 countries. U.S. Special Forces are deployed in various countries, with 4,000 being deployed weekly to the Middle East region, while others wage secret wars in Africa. The United States has multiple fleets of aircraft carriers and battleships deployed abroad in the Persian Gulf and South China Sea. Secret prisons and detention camps like Guantanamo Bay pepper the globe. On top of the formal military, there is an additional army of mercenaries called contractors in neutered State Department language that in places like Iraq and Afghanistan represent double the number of troops. As of the end of 2017, the Department of Defense decided to no longer report how many mercenaries it employs. U.S. military activity is omnipresent, and so is its presence in the arms trade. As of 2018, the top five weapons manufacturers made over $148 billion in sales. U.S. companies' brisk arms dealing is responsible for about 40% of total global weapons sales. Arms deals help the U.S. state facilitate proxy wars and maintain influence, all while filling up the coffers. War extends beyond troops and bombs. Trade deals, sanctions, and international financial institutions are used to control nations with consequences akin to the ravages of war. For example, both the Trump and Obama administrations have sanctioned the Iranian government, and Biden has so far refused to grant any sanction relief to Iran. These current sanctions, as Iran reels from COVID-19, harm Iranians' right to health by limiting what types of medicines they can import and thus making the pandemic deadlier. Sanctions on Venezuela, which Biden will continue, killed 40,000 people in, 20, in 2017 and 2018. The sanctions on these countries, and again others such as North Korea, Cuba, and Zimbabwe, must be considered not only as war against the leaders of those countries, but as collective punishment waged on the working and oppressed people within those countries. The United States' nefarious actions through proxy wars, CIA coup attempts, and economic measures are not unique to the present. However, the magnitude of the operations has tipped over from one of, one of quantity into one of quality. Responding to this new reality will mean reassessing the notion of the brink and of when the emergency begins. New boss, same old bosses. Joe Biden promises to rebuild instruments of American power, and we, we can expect the general contours of war and domination we have described to continue and in some ways sharpen. Biden will continue to turn up the heat on China, and this poses the most dangerous competitive theater for imperialist conflict. He will maintain the trade war tariffs imposed by Trump and attempt through carrot-and-stick diplomatic methods to shore up regional allies to counter ch Chinese hegemony. In Secretary of State Anthony Blinken's first major address since taking office, he outlined the administration's foreign policy vision that, on virtually every front, focused on adversarial competition with China as the biggest geopolitical test of the 21st century. At the same time, Biden has continued with the military chest-thumping of naval exercises in the South China Sea by U.S. vessels just as antagonistically as Trump's administration did. In the Middle East and North Africa region, the U.S. strategy is to scramble to secure hegemony over U.S. dominant economic zone that is currently in competition with Iran on the regional scale. 
while Biden has expressed interest in securing a new nuclear deal with Iran after Trump's unilateral withdrawal, whatever deal is arrived at will be secured via a combination of continued sanctions and military threats as the military strikes from last week and again, this was written uh, a few months ago, demonstrated. Indeed, one of Biden's top officials dealing with Iran is Richard Nephew, whose career-defining use of sanctions culminated in his book, The Art of Sanctions. Oh my gosh. Additionally, the interests of U.S. allies, Israel and Saudi Arabia, will come first. Biden's much ballyhooed change in stance into being hard on Saudi Arabia will likely be cosmetic. This is apparent already with his release of the CIA report acknowledging... Uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman's complicity in the assassination of dissident journalist Jamal Khashoggi, while at the same time stating that he will take no action against MBS. Some have argued that the change will be more substantial and have pointed to Biden's decision to pause and review weapons deals to Saudi Arabia being used in Yemen. Again, the devil is in the details, as there are no restrictions for weapons that the Saudis can use for defensive purposes, and that's in quotation marks, a term with broad usage by the United States. Indeed, the entire doctrine of the war on terror is premised on all aggression being, quote-unquote, defensive. Palestinians, too, will suffer as Biden will further the drive to normalization that Trump accelerated with the Abraham Accords. Biden has stated he will restore contact with the PLO and restore some monetary aid, but will continue to address Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, and settlements and ethnic cleansing will continue unabated. In keeping with the United States' blanket support of Israeli war crimes, Biden will continue to oppose the International Criminal Court's attempts to investigate Israel's brutality toward Palestinians. Is Biden's Palestine policy at all different from that of Trump's? The suggestion of Biden being a big improvement, as Haider Aid remarked, is best met with a dismissive shrug. Thanks for, thanks for sticking with this. Uh, I think that's super important. Okay. Why are these bipartisan policies so crucial for the U.S. ruling class? Normalization of relations with Israel is key for the deeper coherence of the Saudi-Israeli bloc against Iran. Iran is a fly in the ointment of U.S. regional hegemony, and they have been resistant to the Saudi-Israeli axis. Additionally, Iran's influence over Iraq gives the Iranian state cachet over the second and third largest oil-producing countries in the region. We should not confuse these conflicts with real challenges to U.S. imperialism, however. They can best be understood as features of competition between capitalist classes. All the while, while China is one of the major trading partners of Iran, they have, so far, preferred to sit in the background and not actively compete with the U.S. in the MENA region. However, the vast majority of oil used to fuel Chinese factories comes from the Gulf states, and Chinese interest and investment in Africa will edge their Belt and Road infrastructure project toward more and more integration within the Middle East. The general trajectory of U.S. imperialism may involve some small strategic pivots, but the overall course of domination, support for despotic regimes, infinite war on terror, omnipresent bases, and dangerous brinkmanship with China remains. Challenges of Breadth and Brink It is already an analytic challenge to capture the breadth of the U.S. military's imposition on the world. How can the left match our organizing to the reality that the U.S. is currently operating in 40% of the world's countries? maintains military bases in 40 countries, and stations combat troops in 14 countries, with another seven being bombed by planes and drones. It is not enough to see the extent of war being the direct military confrontation between two nations. Rather, the breadth of how imperialism operates on a daily basis shows a panorama of a different kind of war and violence perpetrated by the U.S. around the globe. 
Rather than expressing that breadth, the ghosts of campism still haunt the analyses and organizing of many U.S. leftists, namely those led by certain socialist groups with Stalinist characteristics who focus on defending certain governments, be they quote-unquote socialist China or anti-imperialist Iran, Venezuela, or Russia. The support of nation-states of the anti-imperial camp resisting U.S. aggression often completely needlessly glides into a position of the enemy of my enemy is my friend that supports dictators and despots. U.S. imperial efforts around the world should be unambiguously opposed no matter the country on principle. An analysis that explicitly or implicitly allies with a fictional anti-imperial camp also leads to a situation where certain conflicts receive focus while others are neglected. The narrow focus of demanding U.S. keep its hands off countries described as anti-imperialist means that the left seems to have completely neglected the still ongoing, actually existing war in Afghanistan. Uh, Similarly, it misses developments in places like Sub-Saharan Africa. In Somalia, there is an undeclared war and dramatic escalation of drone and special forces attacks. These are just two examples. In addition to expanding the breadth, we also need to explore how we conceive of where the brink before emergency and war begins in the context of the forever war on terror. In both the case of Iran and Syria, the idea that we are about to go to war becomes very complicated. The back-and-forth rocket attacks in Syria and Iraq of the past month under Biden has a similar dynamic to the events of a year ago. Excuse me. (coughs) Then, pro-Iranian militia demonstrations at the U.S. Embassy in Iraq and the killing of Soleimani escalated tensions between the two countries. Subsequently, there was a series of tete-a-tete missile strikes, including a superficial attack on a U.S. base in Iraq. Both the events of a year ago under Trump and those of weeks ago under Biden are the product of an ongoing situation of attack and riposte played out in a struggle for hegemony over Iraq and its oil. But the actions and any escalation will not require any formal declaration of war. They are the procedure of the new normal of permanent warfare. The notion of saber rattling implies the sword is sheathed. But throughout 2019, there were airstrikes on Saudi air oil fields, the shooting down of a U.S. drone, a cyber attack carried out by the United States, and threats to close the Gulf of Hormuz. Uh, particularly, the use of force no longer requires authorization from Congress. Warships are already in the water. Sanctions are in place. U.S. bases and troops are in Iraq. And the, uh, an outrage blows over proxy attacks and displays of aggression. Given this reality, is focusing on a hypothetical brink in the conflict the best strategy to begin to mount campaign against U.S. sanctions abroad? What is needed is a denormalization of the state of affairs and a concerted effort to build opposition to U.S. imperialism. Yes. The case of Syria reveals another problem. When Obama first threatened missile strikes in 2013 and then Trump carried out actual yet superficial strikes in April 2017, both after gas attacks carried out by the Assad regime, anti-war forces called demonstrations against U.S. war on Syria. However, missile strikes by the U.S. in Syria have been a nearly daily occurrence since at least 2014 when Obama ramped up the fight against Daesh. From 2014 to 2018, the U.S. carried 30,801 strikes on Syria and Iraq, 56% of them in Syria, and killed, by conservative estimates, 3,000 civilians. Undoubtedly, the fact that one set of military actions were directed at the Assad regime, which is supported by some so-called anti-imperialist activists, and the other was not, helped to determine that they defined how they defined an emergency. The grim irony is that the United States' bloody intervention accounts for but a fraction of civilian deaths, roughly 1.3%, when compared to the number killed by Assad, Russia, and Iran. 
The reality of U.S. imperialism is daily atrocity and destruction. The saber is unsheathed and sweeps across the globe. To respond to this breath of war making today with the old modes of organizing would result in near endless emergency protests. The state of emergency has lasted consistently for over a decade. How do we call masses of people into action in this situation of near endless violence and continuous impact? How do we state the case of why now and why here? Instead of, focus, instead of a focus on sounding the alarm of war to come, we should point out that war is here and alter our political perspective to focus on the totality of the war machine. Here is an opportunity to agitate and politically educate around the system of imperialism. Whew. Okay, there's still a bit more. And it's 149. Wow, okay. I'm going to keep going. The only socialist foreign policy should be international revolution. Sketches of a new movement. We need a reconceptualization of strategy. Firstly, it is time to end the selective opposition to imperialism that has undermined the formation of a robust anti-imperialist movement for so long. This will mean that developing a genuine international solidarity with struggles from below rather than apolog apologias uh, for competing state machines. Secondly, our tactics should reflect the immediacy and omnipresence of war by targeting the arteries of militarism throughout the everyday functioning of U.S. society. These general guidelines must be at the center of a serious, consistent, and broadly based opposition to empire. In building a new movement, international solidarity must be central. We must reject the campism of some dinosaurs of the left that demands that a movement against imperialism support other capitalist states. Anti-imperialist politics doesn't mean only opposing American imperialism, but opposing all forms of domination carried out by powerful nations. Our movement will draw strength from supporting the international working class and the opposed excuse me, and the oppressed and their struggles against the states oppressing them. We should reject garbage claims that Syrian revolutionaries are terrorists, whole movements in Hong Kong and Iran are reducible to U.S. proxies, um, and or that China's ethnic cleansing of the Uyghur people is manufactured U.S. propaganda. Imagine if, during the peak of the bombardment of Syria, instead of co connecting anti-war organizing to an apology for Russia and minimization of the overwhelming violence of the Assad state, the left saw the importance of building bridges between those rallying against the U.S. state in Washington and those rallying against the Russian state in Moscow. Organizing for popular reforms like healthcare, free college, and social problems often provoke the response. How are you going to pay for that? Rather than responding with Byzantine arguments about the tax code, a simple truth should be repopularized. We have the money, take it from the Pentagon. Building campaigns and a movement against U.S. militarism that can be responsive to the breadth of all of its odious tendrils has to reckon with the immense amount of funding the Department of Defense receives. As of 2020, this compromised $738 billion. Though costs are often obscured and the real amount spent could be closer to $1.2 trillion, roughly a third of the total federal budget. On top of this, the U.S. leads the world in, arms, in the arms trade. In addition to campaigns targeting the sale of weapons, the left can and should organize campaigns against the manuf manufacturer of weapons. Following the example of divestment tactics often connected with the Palestinian boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement. The liberation of Palestine must also be considered, considered central as the United States' unstinting uh, un support for apartheid Israel is one of the sharpest edges of the U.S. imperial saber, and Palestinians are frequently and first abandoned. Being a real anti-imperialist movement in the U... Oh, excuse me. Whew. 
Building a real anti-imperialist movement in the U.S. will require engaging left forces more meaningfully than the mode of emergency protest and intermittent demonstrations. These methods reinforce the false idea that imperialism is something that happens over there, bombs falling on distant lands. In reality, the U.S. imperialist project shapes every aspect of U.S. workers' lives and activity. The enormity of the federal budget and the vast apparatus devoted to the Pentagon and various state intelligence agencies is just one important element. Because military service represents the United States' only major jobs program, albeit one that churns out death, millions of especially black and brown youth must constantly constrict their hopes of a stable future to a life of death dealing in service of empire. The rod of U.S. gun culture connected with the affliction of mass shootings is intimately tied to the imperial order present and past. 10% of all U.S. factory output goes into weapons and manufacturing. In time of impending climate catastrophe, the U.S. military is the largest single consumer of hydrocarbons and consequently the biggest polluter in the world. Historically, the U.S. labor movement has aided and abetted U.S. interests abroad, which has contributed to undermining the labor movement's strength domestically. And finally, a immense humanitarian migrant crisis persists, driven above all by competition among nation states that has resulted in environmental catastrophe, dispossession, capital extraction, and destabilization through war and conflict. Immigration and the weaponization of borders is a question of imperialism and cannot fully be understood outside of this context. A thriving anti-imperialist movement can only grow from a strategy that targets the multifaceted impact of U.S. imperialism on everybody's, on people's everyday lives. This will require drawing connections between the poverty draft into the military and the need for actual jobs programs, fighting for a Green New Deal that includes a significant drawdown of the military, repurposing industrial output for green energy and for human need, and generally devoting the resources of our society to meet the actual needs presented by a deeply unstable world of climate and pandemic. Undergirding it all is a dire need for, the, for an uncompromising stance of international solidarity with those who face and often heroically resist the brutal reality of U.S. dominance. If we understand that imperialism is not purely military domination and are able to connect it to the economic weapons of tariffs, trade deals, sanctions, and international financial institutions, we can strategically integrate the immediate cancellation of the debt held by the global south as an anti-imperial demand. An important part of educating a new movement will mean discussing issues of imperialism in terms that go beyond questions of foreign policy. With this analytic reorientation, the left should also abandon the idea that we should aim to take hold of the existing state through elections in order to promote some sort of socialist foreign policy. This approach existed among some supporters of Bernie Sanders. Many assume that if the movement could just get him elected, then the U.S. imperialist project could be reformed into a socialist foreign policy enacted by presidential executive orders. Obviously, reforms enacted by people like Sanders and Ilan Omar would have positive effects. However, the fact that the U.S. cannot be transformed from imperial dominator to anti-imperial bastion must be central to our analysis. That means that the position of any socialist in Congress toward imperialism should be simple and unequivocal, not a penny for the system, to quote Rosa Luxemburg. Rather than reinforcing the notion that the U.S. should be the, should be the global hegemon when talking points 
about America leading the world for good, the left should challenge this fundamental assumption. The only socialist foreign policy should be international revolution. The suggestions above are only outlines that indicate the kind of concrete politics and organizing needed to, needed to remake a new anti-imperialist movement. The task is to build grassroots engagement that articulates the breadth and centrality of the U.S. imperial project to save to our everyday lives, effectively interrupts the new normal of global violence, insists upon a hardline stance against U.S. militarism and funding, and sees international solidarity as key. That is why we need to take on the greatest purveyor of violence in the world, the United States of America. Wow. Okay. Didn't, wow. That was a lot. All right. And so this was, again, Jonathan Ellis, Brian Bean, uh, March 17th, 2021 for Rampant Magazine. We'll share a link to it on our page, weeklyrev.org. If you are encouraged by anything you heard, liked it, and or are able to donate, please do so weeklyrev.org. Click on the Patreon page. Anywhere from a dollar a month and up would be greatly appreciated. And with that, it's time to end the show. Wow. All right. We didn't make it to all the songs on the playlist. Uh, so I guess let's play what the next one is. Uh, Old Hearts by Benjamin Booker. And we'll be back uh, next week, let's hope. <laughs> Take care, everyone. <laughs>